This morning's parable is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Um, We are going through the parables, and we're really tracking through the parables of Luke. And you might remember last week I had said Jason would be preaching this Sunday, but when we started to look at the passages, uh, this one really fits with the Lord's Supper. So he'll be preaching next week, and I'm preaching uh, on this uh, great banquet parable this week. And as we approach the uh, a picture of the great banquet, right, that's what the Lord's Supper is. Um, the background to this passage is in chapter 13, Jesus says some intense words. He says that, um, I tell there are people, uh, he's, hypo- he's saying at the end of the age, there'll be people who say, we ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. You workers of evil. And then our very setting is, is, a, is a setting where Jesus is eating with religious people who don't quite understand who he is, who don't receive him. And yet it seems like at the end of the age you could almost hear that group saying, but we, we gathered with you, we ate with you, we kind of heard about you. And, and the question this morning is, are we coming, are we longing for the real feast? Are we longing to eat the marriage supper of the lamb? Or are we sort of playing at that? That's the hard question that every Lord's Day brings us, and really every day brings us, and particularly this morning. Jesus finishes chapter 13 by crying out to Jerusalem how he longed to gather them uh, as a mother hen would gather up her young. And so we come to this, um, this parable with a lot. So let's read it together and, and see where we go with this. Uh, this, this. Jesus talking these intense words to these uh, Pharisees and rulers starting in verse 7 of chapter 14. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will go excuse me, then you will sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up. Okay, I've skipped a line. So sorry. Let's try this again. Who laughed? All right, verse nine. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now he's transitioning to a slightly different parable. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those 
who had been invited come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. We are, uh, the the weather's getting cooler, right? It's late October. We're all thinking about Thanksgiving. Many of you I've heard maybe canceling or changing your plans. But normally, when there's not a pandemic, we gather in big crowds. That's at least the desire and the goal of a feast, isn't it? Have you ever met someone, or maybe you've done this, where you thought, hey, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, I'm not going to eat. Has anyone done that? I'm going to not eat for two days or one day, or maybe I'll just skip breakfast. But I want to be really, really hungry for my Thanksgiving dinner. Why do you do that? Because we live in a culture that has so much food, it's almost ridiculous that we celebrate eating, right? I mean, it's kind of lost its luster a little bit. You know, if you think about the original Thanksgiving, they were going to die, and, and the natives rescued them, and it was the, the bounty was so rich, they wanted to celebrate. And most feasts have that, that sort of angle, that relationship. But I think for us, we come to the Lord's Supper totally full from this culture and from the world and from our idols. And so we often come to Jesus not hungry. We come to the Lord's Supper, and we even think about the great feast one day, someday, and we're not that excited about it because so many things have wooed us away from him. And so this morning, what we want to find out is it's the hunger in our soul that really drives us the feast on Jesus. And that's what we want to discover this morning. Three things, the purpose of the feast, the posture of the feast, and the person of the feast. So first of all, the purpose of the feast uh, this story begins on a Sabbath day. So Jesus, was a, a, he would go around teaching. He was a rabbi. He's obviously probably been involved in some form of teaching on the Sabbath. He's been invited to the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. Um, something I didn't read, it's in, chap- it's in verses 1 to 6, but uh, there's actually a man that walks up that has a, an illness. It's called dropsy, and Jesus heals him. And Jesus is kind of watching to see what the Pharisees will think of it. They don't say anything. And then Jesus says, which of you, if you had an ox or a son and and fall into a dish, wouldn't rescue them on the Sabbath? What's he doing? He's saying, let's go back to the creation. Remember, there are six days of creation, and mankind was very good. And then God rested. Everything was perfect. And the Sabbath is what we we do to worship and, and long for the day that that happens. But wouldn't, on the Sabbath, all of us be aware of brokenness in our midst? Isn't that the idea? And, and wouldn't we long to see Jesus' healing extend to people in real need? And so they had completely lost sight of what the feast was for. They were just having lunch. So Jesus sets the stage. He says, here's a parable. Let me tell you about a wedding feast. 
Now, when they hear that, that kind of ups the ante. That goes from being just normal lunch at this ruler of the Pharisee's home to like this really grand city-wide or town or village-wide celebration. People would come in and, and he says, here's the situation. At a wedding feast, um, there's like special seating. And I think we, we know that in our world. You know, you don't just walk in and go, I'm going to sit next to the bride. Right? I mean, you kind of realize, oh, there's like nameplates and there's kind of like clearly a, a, a pecking order in this setup. And it was true in that culture as well. That was not news to them. His point was, you know this about wedding feasts. Why at this lunch, why in the moment are you pretending that that doesn't still exist? Why are you pretending that that humility doesn't matter right now? That's what he's talking about. He's saying the purpose of this lunch on the Sabbath or a wedding feast or any celebratory meal is to long for the great feast. But they were part of this culture, like a proprietary culture, where it was more of a quid pro quo, right? You, you, you invite the people that were wealthy, the people that made you feel better about yourself, the people who could serve you in some way. That was the culture they were living in. And they had lost sight of the purpose. But yet what they knew, if they had read, their, and they read their Bibles, these were the smart the religious people, or what Isaiah would have, would have prophesied many years before when he says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. They know that promise. But somehow their Sabbath meal has become disconnected from that promise. And we know that Jesus came to fulfill that promise. We know that in Revelation 21, he tells John, John's, you know, seeing this vision, and he says, I heard a loud voice. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And so the question that is burning on Jesus' mind as he's healed that man in the sight of religious elders and leaders is, do you want that feast? Are we longing for everything sad to come untrue? Or are we complacent? Now, the, the, it really turns up the heat when he goes into, like, basically, when you throw a party, who are you inviting? He says, you need to invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And he's, he's saying, you need to invite the people that will make you very uncomfortable. Why? Because you're one of them. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But the idea he's setting is this. The purpose of this feast is to gather in people who don't contribute to your false sense of success, but rather who remind us that we are part of a larger body, a diverse body, a very different body, a different group. And it's this normal place of church where God does so much work. I think we're losing sight of this. In our modern era, we have grown very comfortable with um, sort of picking and choosing where we find God. And he is saying it's in this meal and in ordinary places where he pours out his spirit and he shows us his beauty. I've referenced it before, but many of you know Screwtape Letters. I've never read this one to you. This is a, a book by C.S. Lewis where he, he imagines a demon named Screwtape training his nephew Wormwood 
how to be a better demon. In Wormwood, it's during World War II uh, and uh, that it's written, and Wormwood has this patient, I don't think we ever find out his name, who's become a Christian. And so now it's Screwtape's job to help Wormwood figure out how to derail this new convert's faith. And one of the letters says, my dear Wormwood, they all begin that way, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what, you are, what that's about and what your plan is? Why do I have no report on the causes of his fidelity to that church? <clears throat> in other words, why is he still going if he's unhappy? Do you realize that unless it's due to indifference, it's a very bad thing? You hear what he's saying? It's very bad if this person keeps going to this church that he finds to be less than exciting. He says, if you can't basically, if you can't get him to not go to church at all, surely you know that you can have him go all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. And he goes on to explain that the reason is if you have him come into one place It'll be all these different classes of people and different psychological makeups that will come together. And it's what the enemy desires. For screw tape letters, the enemy's always God. And it's a fascinating, fascinating letter. Of course, fiction mostly. Um, this idea that what Satan hates and what God loves is for different people to gather together in worship and in the feast that looks toward the great feast. And that is the purpose. The purpose of the feast this morning and the purpose of the great feast is that God is bringing all of his body, all of his family, all of these obscure-looking people into one place. It's important to know that when you hear poor and crippled and lame and blind, yes, that can be a one-for-one, but remember these are parables. And we do need to love those that have physical ailments, of course, but that's, that was way more of an issue in that culture. In that culture, with very little health care like we have today and resources, those individuals, like, like widows and orphans, were often outcasts. They were often on the, on the byways. So our application then is the purpose of the feast to go grab and gather people who are different from us. So my question is, are you excited about that? Are we excited about being in a room or a space of some kind as a family of Christ? Or are we always thinking, there's got to be better? Maybe this is just, maybe, maybe God doesn't really want to use this group of people. Can any of you really help me in my walk with Jesus? Can that meal, that thing we do, really do anything? Do you struggle with that? Because Jesus is inviting you and saying, here's the purpose of the feast. But he also says, there's a posture to the feast. There's a posture to the feast and that's what we see uh, really highlighted in that first parable of the wedding. The posture in that wedding is people uh, are not to walk into a room and have a pecking order. We're no longer to ask, how should we line up? Who can, who can help me? Right, who can advance my career? And so verse 11 says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, I have a little booklet. I didn't bring it in here by Andrew Murray on humility. <clears throat> but in it, he writes that this is the, the number one 
<clears throat> virtue that leads to all virtues is humility. And you see some quotes <clears throat> on the front of the worship God. I put a, a quote by Tim Keller who says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Jesus himself, when he begins his Sermon on the Mount, he begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? We're not going around, and Jason said it too in his confession, we're not trying to be self-deprecating. You know, that's what Keller is saying. We're not thinking less of ourselves. Humility is, and this is a Spurgeon quote, humility is having a right or correct assessment of yourself. And the correct assessment of all of you is you are glorious ruins, right? We're glorious in that way we were made, from, but because of the fall, we, are, have, we have problems and we have needs. And so to pretend that we don't and to go around this world as if we have it all together is absurd. And yet we do it, don't we? The world does it. The world can't handle humility. I want to read the quote from John Stott, also on the, in the worship guide. It's the third quote, the fourth quote. He says, at no point does the gospel come into more violent collision with the world than in its insistence on humility as the paramount virtue. The wisdom of the world despises humility. Western culture has been greatly influenced, often unconsciously, by the power philosophy of Nietzsche, who envisaged the emergence of a daring and ruler race. His hero was the Ubermensch. I don't preach German. I don't speak German, though. A tough, brass, masculine, overbearing person who would become the Lord of the earth. But if the ideal of his was a superman, the ideal of Jesus was a little child. There is no possibility of finding a compromise between these alternatives. Remember in chapter um, chapter 10, the 72 had just returned of the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus is praising God in the Spirit that he had shown his heaven, he had shown his kingdom to little children. And so these parables, we're talking about the secret of these parables, the secret is, are you becoming like a child? Are you, are you able to start coming to these scriptures and to Jesus himself being honest with your need, honest with your brokenness? In the very next thing, passage, right after ours, in verse 25, Jesus says one of the craziest things he says maybe anywhere in the Bible. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That sounds so harsh. This Jesus is so intense, isn't he? Or is he giving us more of that secret? That the irony is you can't love your father, your wife, your siblings, whomever, or yourself if you love them more than Jesus. You'll crush them. Your idolatry will kill them, you see. You cannot be both proud and loving. So he has to give examples that will stir your imagination when he says, never throw a party and invite friends, of course he's not saying that. Have your friends over for dinner. Of course he's not saying that. His point is, but I want you to be so filled with my gospel that you'd be tempted to only invite the blind and the lame and the crippled. Now, 
If you have family like ours, that's the same thing, right? It's the same kind of people. You're going to invite your family over, the ones you don't get along with. I'm kidding, people listening online. We love you all. Thanksgiving is going to be great. But we begin to have this posture of humility, right? We begin to have this posture that we are actually more needy than we realize. You see, these excuses are very important. Let's look at them. The, the parable of the great banquet, he's given this wedding parable. He transitions to the host and says, when you invite people, you know, don't invite your friends, invite you know, the lame and the crippled and the blind and the poor. And then he says, let me tell you about this person who had a great banquet, and he invited these people, and it, what, what commentators are calling a double invitation. He, he invites people who say yes, the RSVP, and then a host in that culture would have to go and then choose the amount of meat to slaughter, like their own livestock, to provide for that group. And for them to do that and prepare it, and then now say, you know, the equivalent of dinner's ready, and you say, I'm not coming, would be unheard of. Like, the, the, the audience in that room would have just melted at the thought of that. And when you look at the three excuses, they're ridiculous. I mean, I've got a field I need to go look at. In that, in that era, you would know the field like the back of your hand before you even made an offer. Much more when you owned it already, you wouldn't go look at it. Oxen are the same. You would never just go buy oxen sight unseen. You needed to observe them when they're yoked. And it says five yoke of oxen. Are they instead? Is this a, is this a team of oxen or five teams of oxen that would actually help my product? You would have done that long before you purchased them. And a wife? Like, we love our wives. We love our husbands. But a weekend away, come on, right? Some people say, well, there is that scripture in the, old, in the law that says, you know, for one year a man doesn't serve in the army. That's not, that's a year. And that's to not die before you have kids. Like, like this is ridiculous excuses. What are your excuses? I mean, that's what this parable is asking me and asking you. Fill in the blank. When I'm not f- wanting to feast on Jesus, when I'm sort of looking at him going, you know, next time, what am I doing? I'm saying, I don't need you right now. I've learned more of who you are since the invitation came. And you're not quite what I bargained for. I'm going to go this route. Tim, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, instead of being poor in spirit, we become the middle class in spirit. We have things, we have our resources, we have things we trust in, right? And so the posture of the feast then is to come, and and one of the best images I can throw out there for you guys is you're an addict. Like, we're all addicted. We're all addicted to our idols, to whatever substance, whatever thing in your mind. Like, every human being struggles with addiction. And, And talking with people who wrestle with it there in my own life as well, before I name something as an addiction, it's very tempting to be like, I think I have this under control. I'm middle class. See, I've got this. But what an addict does, they finally come and say, look, this is out of control. I need help. And I think we're so scared to do that because what? You have to, it's like a trust fall. And you hope Jesus is behind you. But he has you. And you want to come to his feast because you're hungry. Right? 
question. What happens when you show up to a feast and you have nothing to bring and you know that you're broke and you know that you're poor and you know that you have, you have these issues, the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame, and you see the feast in front of you can actually feed your hunger is it ignites in you an excitement. And the gospel is so amazing and so free and so full that when this parable ends, the servant went to every single person in the village that he could find, and they filled the room, and there's still room. It's a missionary feast. We need to be into missions. We need to be going after people that are different from us. Right? Are you doing that? Am I, I mean, I'm, it's convicting. Am I doing that? Um, am I humble? Is that your posture? Uh, racism is such a hot topic right now, which I don't, I don't, it's so hard because I talk to so many dear friends on one side of the debate, which why is there a debate? And then I hear other people say, no, no, it's just this kind of, vo- it's, 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 it's sort of in style or like, do the Bible is very clear, starting in really Cain and Abel, right? Brother killing a brother. But the Tower of Babel, like, there are races, and, and there are social classes, and there are people that are different. And if we're not feasting on Jesus for our identity, we are necessarily choosing our tribe. That's, what, that's your only other option. And that's what these Pharisees are doing. They chose their people. So whether you want to call it racism or classism or whatever ism you want to name it, sin moves in hatred of other people. And the gospel comes in and until you see yourself as the blind, as the poor, as the one that's like the lowest seat, we are in a sense contributing to that sin pattern in some way. And that's what we have to be curious about. Grace comes when we receive it and we eat at the feast. That's the posture of the feast. But finally, the person of the feast. What does that mean? I was talking to Jason about this, and he said something I'm going to reference. I'm going to butcher it. So it's not at all what you said, but it's born from what you said. He said he had a professor who used to ask, what's your view of heaven? So when we talk about the great feast, we're longing for heaven. And the professor would say something along the lines of, is Jesus there? And if you think about often how heaven's articulated, you know, it's eternal bliss. You have all this stuff you say, but often, I think Jesus will be there, right? And so you have this feast. Is Jesus at the feast? When you imagine the, the wedding banquet, right, that we're going, we are the bride, he is the groom. Is he there? Um. This is really seen in John chapter 6, one of my, as you know, one of my favorite passages, mainly because I don't understand it still, where Jesus has fed the 5,000. They want to make him an earthly king. He sends his disciples off across the sea while he goes up to pray. So the, the masses of people who've been fed know he's still there. The next morning he's gone. He walked on the water, right? He's crossed over. He's rejoined his disciples. So that crowd is so upset that he left them because they had a meal ticket. They had free bread anytime they wanted it. So they finally catch him, and they come to him. They said, why did you go? And he says in chapter 6, 
verse 26. Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now they switch gears. They get into this dialogue about the manna from heaven, and, and they're trying to figure it out. And eventually Jesus just simply says, I'm the bread of life. You have to eat of my flesh. And they're like, slowly back away. This is weird. This is cannibalism. This is strange. And yet, that is what Jesus is offering us in this meal. We didn't put a ton out because I figured if I talk about this long enough, several of you would be like, I can't do it. It's crazy. Sorry, not maybe the best time for that. But that's how it feels. It feels very intense. Jesus is the bridegroom. We're the bride. But it's his body, it's his atoning work that makes us able to come in and eat. It's what we need. We need Jesus. Another way to say it is we need to be born again. Um, in John 3, so earlier than John 6, obviously, there's this man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Listen to the title, a ruler of the Jews. Now, is that the same person in our story in, John, in Luke 14? I don't know. But it was a ruler of the Pharisees. The point is it's the same type of person. And here's what I love about this. It shows us that even the most legalistic, crusty, whatever guy can be melted away and come to know Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So I would ask you as we get nearer to this communion, are you born again? Does the Holy Spirit dwell in your soul? That's, that's important. Are you a Christian? Because if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in your soul, applying all the benefits of Christ, you have not transferred into the kingdom of, of Jesus. You're still living in the kingdom of darkness, and this is all a show. And, you're, and we're going to continue to make these excuses. Well, I got really close to wanting that, but I, I bought a field. I got some oxen. I was getting married. And what this meal is asking you to do is, and first and foremost, are you a Christian? And then secondly, if you are a Christian, have you repented? Have you come to Jesus lately and said, I am running after so many other things? I am filling my soul with so much other things and I'm not filling it with you. This meal is our opportunity to repent of that. But the primary thing I want us to think about as we come together is this meal is a meal of unity. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, where when we, when, we, um, fence the ta when we talk about the words of institution that comes from 1 Corinthians 11, remember... Paul's writing this letter to Corinth, uh, this body of believers who had nothing but disunity. Like, that's how it begins. Some of you say, I follow Paul, and others say, I follow Apollos. And you're all just basically choosing, like the Wormwood guy in C.S. Lewis's scripture. You're choosing. The enemy has caused you to just go out and choose your leaders or your churches or your whatever, your communities. And then in chapter 11, we find out that when they take communion... They're like doing it in such a horrific way. Like they'll, the wealthy people will have their meal over here and some people don't have anything to eat. And so Paul's like, listen, if you're hungry, eat at home. 
we recognize that these elements are not enough to make a true, like, meal. This is not one of your three square meals. It's your spiritual food. And so Paul then reminds the Corinthians and us of these words. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Can you remember, like, do you, what do you picture when he says remembrance? Do you picture, like, one of those slideshows with music and maybe scenes of Jesus laughing with his disciples? Like, what do you picture? What does he mean by remember me? How can you remember him if you never have been on earth with him and seen him? He means long for me. Like, remember the gospel promises that I have given you. Remember the scripture you've meditated on. Remember that your life is hidden in mine, and I am here, and I am present in this meal, and I am the reason you have life now. Remembering him is so much more than just simply kind of like, remember Jesus. It's an active engagement in the process of taking the meal. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What he's saying is, we are taking this meal longing for heaven. Do you long for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Remember the three things. First of all, the purpose. He will make all things sad come untrue. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. That's the purpose of that feast. We will go to heaven and we will finally celebrate a celebration that never ends. It never, well, I guess it's winding down. It's never ending. The posture is humility. We go because we are the blind, we are the poor, we are the needy. And the person, Jesus, we go to that eternal feast to be face to face. The veil is removed and we see our Savior who looks at you and says, I love you. I died for you. I came for you. Not because of something you've done, not because of some way you've conducted yourself, but because you rested in me. You confessed your need of me. You received me. Will you do that this morning? Will you come to Jesus with nothing in your hands? As Isaiah 55 says, come and eat. Come and buy without money. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for leaving us this sacrament. Lord, that with actual bread an actual juice or wine that goes into our bodies, you, through the presence of your Holy Spirit, through the word preached, through this entire service, you use this meal to teach us even more what it means that one day, someday, we will be with you. Lord, in John 4, when your disciples returned, you said, I have already eaten, essentially. I've, I've had food. I don't need food. And what you are referring to is the food of serving your Father. So, Lord, we come to this spiritual meal praising to be filled with this food. That all of our needs would be met, not by the idols of our life, not by sins we run after, but by you alone. Holy Spirit, will you please help us to that end this morning? Amen.